Welcome everybody to our journey into Genesis 1. This is the creation series where I don't know how many episodes we're going to have, but where for many, many episodes, we're going to be covering Genesis 1, Genesis 2, into Genesis 3. And we're going to be looking at the actual cultural context that the biblical authors were writing in. Because I think a lot of Genesis 1 through 3 is terribly misunderstood, misinterpreted, or misapplied simply because we are viewing these texts through a modern lens in how we view reality and how we view creation. So today, we're going to be covering a lot of ground today, uh, about one verse, <laughs> uh, but but trust me, it'll be worth it. And in this series will be different than how we've done things throughout the past. Uh, we just got done through Romans, and what we did there is we just went verse by verse, went through the whole book of Romans verse by verse. But we're going to do things a little bit differently here. Um, we're actually going to be going through topic by topic or theme by theme or kind of just breaking down a lot of the cultural barriers that we have when approaching these texts. And so we may be looking at certain parts of Genesis 1 in a different order than how it's written. But but trust me, um, it will really help us understand better what is really going on. And I think of it like this, is that there's there's many different ways that you could arrive to a, a destination. You could just jump straight in. And in this case, although we would get to our destination quicker, and that is just getting through Genesis 1 through 3, we will certainly hit so many potholes and run into so many obstacles that we would just wreck our car. And it would not be a good experience. And we really wouldn't learn anything. But rather, the, the journey I want to take us on is a, a scenic route a route that we are able to thoroughly investigate every single avenue that we possibly can. And we're still going to get to our destination, but we're going to get there safely. We're going to get there in a way where we can understand and grasp better what the biblical authors and God are really trying to convey throughout Genesis 1 through 3, but we will get to our destination. So, the the start of this journey was in our first episode. And if, if you haven't listened to it yet, I highly recommend that you listen to it first because there are some things that we're going to start looking at that are going to sound strange or counter to how we view reality and what we've been taught. And if you haven't listened to the first episode, it, it may be a struggle to just hop into some of these things and be able to understand and accept them. I'm just going to give a quick summary of the last episode that will help guide us into our discussion today. And the first thing that we need to remember is that the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. And Genesis in particular, it was written to ancient Jews that lived as long as 3,000 plus years ago, who had a vastly different understanding of reality and the cosmos as we do today. And in order for us to properly understand Genesis within its ancient context, we'll need to let go of our modern ways of viewing reality in the universe and read the text on its own terms. So today, we're going to start this journey, and we're going to be focusing on what I think is a pretty foundational understanding of biblical cosmology, and that is 
the meaning and usage of heaven and earth. And this is coming from the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So question, how do we view heaven and earth today? And this question is very, very important because for many of us today, we have understood Genesis 1 to be an account of the creation of the entire universe as we know it. And that understanding hinges on our way of how we understand what heaven and earth is and what heaven and earth means. So let's take a look. Here's the modern way of viewing heavens and earth. For many of us, heaven would equal a kind of post-mortem, other dimensional reality of bliss, eternal, um, the place you go when you die, right? We, we view heaven as kind of the spiritual realm. When we think of heavens, when it's used plurally, we typically think of like deep space, galaxies, stars, look to the heavens, and we think about all the planets and the, the whole universe outside of earth. And when we think of earth, we think of a, a sphere or a globe. First thing that pops into my mind is the, the pictures from space where you just see this huge planet, blue and green, just floating in space. That's our modern way of viewing heavens and earth. But the Bible's way of viewing heaven and earth is a little bit different. Uh, heavens is viewed as God's space. Earth is viewed as human space. And then later on in the series, we'll get into the waters. And the waters is viewed as nobody's space. And that'll be an interesting discussion as well. But what I want to do is I just want to look at some Old Testament texts that talk about heavens and earth. And instead of just straight up just saying what we think it means, let's just read heavens and earth in context and see how the Bible uses it. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens in the earth. Uh, notice that heavens is plural. It's not talking about just one heaven. It's talking about the heavens. It's plural. Okay. Uh, and here, the heavens is being contrasted with the earth. So whatever earth means, whatever earth is, uh, then it would be understood that the heavens is its mirror. It's, a, it's its contrast. Okay. Uh, we can also point out that just the word for heavens, uh, the Hebrew word, shemayim, it, it also means sky. Okay. And as we'll see going forward, shemayim, the Hebrew word for heavens here, it's used many times in Genesis 1. And I think as we'll see, its context in Genesis 1, it doesn't seem to be talking about deep space or galaxies, or even the spiritual realm of heaven, it seems to be talking about the sky, the, the place above the land. Okay, uh, let's look at some Old Testament examples that talk about earth. Psalm 24, verse 1 through 2. 
says the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And the it here is the earth. It's Hebrew poetry where it compares two different things. It's two different ways of talking about the same thing. So it's saying he has founded earth upon the seas and established earth upon the rivers. Hmm. So just making some observations. So if the earth is founded upon the seas and the rivers, um, it doesn't seem like an assumption that earth being a globe would fit here. Earth can't be a globe in, in this verse because we know that the globe is not founded upon seas and founded upon rivers. It's floating in space. Okay. So it doesn't seem that earth here could be referring to the planet or the globe. It seems to be referring to something else. What about Psalm 104, verse 1 through 5? It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. It's that same Hebrew word, Shemayim. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messenger, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. So here, just a few interesting things that we can look at. Uh, heaven is referred to as being stretched out like a tent. And above this tent, it says in verse 3 that, God lays his upper chambers in the waters. So heaven is depicted as a tent where God lives in this beamed structure in the waters that are above. That's interesting. We're also told that the earth sits on pillars. The earth is established on its foundation so that it won't tip over. So once again, we're just making some observations here, but... Do you notice how our modern way of viewing reality in the universe doesn't really line up with some of these texts? We know that the earth does not have an actual foundation that won't allow it to tip over. We know that that heaven, whatever we may think it is, is not literally stretched out like a tent curtain. And we also know that God is not sitting above the the sky in watery chambers. At least that's not our way of viewing things. And typically our, our response is that these are just metaphorical, right? But let, let's put that aside for the moment and just observe what the Bible is saying. Let's take a look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 through 4. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And this here is one of the Ten Commandments. And what's interesting is that if heaven here is referring to another dimension where God dwells, a spiritual dimension, that's only for the afterlife, how does God expect anyone to know how to make an idol of a creature that lives in this spiritual realm of heaven. It seems more likely that heaven above here 
is referring to the skies. Like, don't make any idols of the birds that you see flying around or the animals that are on the earth or in the water, the fish. God's saying, don't make any idols of these created creatures that really mirror the created creatures in the order in Genesis 1, which we'll get to a little bit later. And furthermore, just making observations, what are the waters under the earth? The waters under the earth sound very similar to what we read in Psalm 24 when David said that the earth was founded upon the seas. Just making observations. And these are just a few of many, many texts in the Old Testament that seem to be speaking about heaven and earth in ways that we just are not familiar with today. So what does this all mean? Let's go ahead and take a look at how heaven and heavens are used in Genesis 1. Uh, there, there are a few ways that heaven is used throughout the entire Bible. The more popularized way is that it's speaking about the place that we go to when we die, where God dwells. However, as we'll see, this is not how heaven is used in Genesis 1. As we looked at before, the word heaven is the Hebrew word shemayim, and shemayim means sky. And in this context, it seems very clear that shemayim is speaking about a physical sky. So let's look at Genesis 1, 6 through 8, just as an example. And depending on your translation, um, you may see the word firmament or expanse or vault tossed around. And this is something very, very cool that we'll get into in a later episode. But for the sake of our reading, uh, we're just going to call it what it's referred to by and in Hebrew is the Rakia. But the goal for today is not to try and figure out what the Rakia is. Um, we're going to be looking at how the word heaven is being used. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. And God said, let there be a Rakia in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the rakia and separated the waters that were under the rakia from the waters that were above the rakia. And it was so. And God called the rakia heaven. Now, if we're reading closely, you're probably confused about what on earth is going on with these waters that are above this rakia and the waters that are below and they're being separated and that's a whole nother topic that we'll get into. But notice how the word heaven is being used. Verse 8, it says, God called this rakia heaven. So heaven is described as the thing that is separating the waters below it and the waters above it. So this can't mean that heaven is referring to a deep space uh, or a spiritual realm Heaven seems to be referring to the sky here, the physical sky. Here's another example. Genesis 1, verse 20. God said, Let the waters swarm with swarming living creatures and birds that fly over the land against the surface of the rakia of the heavens. So here again, the, the heavens is being depicted as something that birds can apparently fly against the surface of. It's really interesting. So if we're just approaching the text with what it's giving us, we've been told that the Rakia is called heaven. 
in here in verse 20, we're told that the rakia is something that birds can fly against the surface of. So heaven here can't be referring to a spiritual place that God dwells or deep space or the universe or um, all of these things. It, it seems very, very clear, even within Genesis' own context, that heavens is referring to the sky. Here's another example uh, of the same type of imagery of birds flying against the heavens is Psalm 8, verses 5 through 8. It said, Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the seas, whatever passes along the path of the seas. So so are you with me here? It very, very clear. This the same repeated theme of heavens, not referring to deep space or the galaxy or the universe, or even the spiritual realm where God dwells. Even Psalm 8 talks about the birds of the heavens. We know that birds fly in the sky. So our first step toward approaching Genesis on its own cultural terms is by just allowing the text to tell us what it means. And it's very, very clear that heavens here is not referring to deep space or the galaxy or spiritual realm. Heavens is talking about the sky. So if heavens is talking about the sky, then what is earth talking about? Earth is going to be a fun one. Now, I don't know why this revelation and what we're about to learn about Earth was so profound to me. Uh, Probably because this was the first real moment that I realized that the biblical authors had a vastly different conception of the world than I do. And it also made me realize that I was just unconsciously importing my modern cosmology and my way of viewing the world into the ancient text of the Bible. And it was causing me to just completely misunderstand and misuse the biblical texts. And maybe you'll have the same profound revelation like I did. Uh, But if not, hey, let's just still dive into it and see what's going on here with earth. So the first thing that we can mention is that the Hebrew word for earth is eretz. And edits does not mean a globe earth. This is a modern meaning of the English word for earth that depends upon a conception of the planet as a, as a sphere that's floating in space. And this simply was not a view that was available to the biblical authors at the time. And we can tell this because there are no uses of the word edits in the Hebrew Bible that describe the land as a sphere. Ancient people, 3,000 plus years ago, did not have a conception of Earth being a big round globe, a big round planet that's floating in space. They simply didn't. So edits does not mean a big globe or sphere. Rather, the word 
mean the word's meaning describes the land that is below the skies and the clouds. And obviously, this usage of the word earth is not far-fetched. We, we can imagine earth referring to land and not the globe, at least in English. Because in English, we can call the globe the earth, or we can call the dirt that's on the ground the earth. And like I said before, that biblical authors in ancient Near Eastern people 3,000 plus years ago, they didn't have a conception of the earth being a round planet floating in space. And we'll, what we'll learn later on in the series is that ancient Near Eastern peoples, including ancient Israel, had a very different way of viewing the structure of the world than we do. It's actually really, really cool, but we'll have to save that for another time. But understanding this reality alongside how the Bible uses the word earth is very, very important to understanding what Genesis 1 is and isn't saying. So let's look at how earth or edits is used in the Old Testament. And let's, let's just make some observations. Genesis 1, verse 9 through 10. God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. Well, th this one's pretty explicit. And this was one of the profound uh, texts to me when I, I grasped this concept of earth not referring to a globe. Is that it just plainly and flat out tells us that earth is referring to to the ground. It's referring to the dry land. It says in verse 10, God called the dry land earth. It's not talking about a globe. Earth here, edits, is referring to dry land, the ground. Okay, let's see some other texts. Genesis 1, verse 11 through 12. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, Plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. So here, if earth was referring to a globe floating in space, it would seem weird for God to call on the entire globe to sprout vegetation. However. Knowing that earth is referring to the dry land, it seems quite normal to expect that the dry land is going to bring forth vegetation. Here's another one, Genesis chapter 8, verse 13 through 4. This is uh, Noah's flood. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. So if you listened to the episode that we did on Noah's flood, you may remember some of these topics here. But, I mean, just plainly, we're told that earth had dried out. The earth had dried out. Now, it's quite clear that the entire globe was not completely dried of all of its water. I don't think anybody reading this thinks that God completely drained the entire planet 
of all of its water in the oceans and all the rivers. I don't think anybody imports that type of meaning when they read this. It's quite clear <laughs> that the whole globe was not completely dried out of water. This would be catastrophic to all life on Earth. However, since we know that Earth, edits means dry land, the ground, we can understand that Earth here is not referring to the globe, but it's referring to the ground, the actual dry land that the flood took place upon. Let's look at this next one. This is talking about Noah's descendants before the Tower of Babel incident. Genesis chapter 10, verse 11. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Okay. So verse 11 again, it says, from that land, he went into Assyria. So the word that gets translated as land is the Hebrew word edetz, the same word for earth. So here, earth is being translated by our English translations as land. And it's not referring to a globe that's floating in space. It's referring to the, the ground, a piece of land that these people are moving into. Here's the last one. Um, if you want to do a word study on earth, if you think I'm missing some, there's over 2,500 instances where edits is being used. And go through them all. Never once is it referring to a globe or a sphere. It's always talking about the ground. But this instance that we're going to look at, this is God speaking to Jacob in a dream. Genesis chapter 28, verse 13 through 14. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. Interesting. So here, the translations, English translations, use the word earth and land. It says the land on which you lie, and then your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. They use those in different terms to mean something different, but it's the same Hebrew word, the word edits, that is being translated as land and as earth. But in both instances, it's referring to the dry ground. It's not referring to the globe. And we know this to be true because in verse 14, when God says, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, he's not referring to a globe, saying that your offspring will be like the dust of a huge planet floating in space would be quite odd. But talking about offspring being the dust of the dry ground, the dirt, the earth, that makes a lot more sense. So I, I hope this helps us start to see how the biblical authors have a very different view and meaning of the words heavens and earth. They did not view the heavens as being this deep space galaxy-filled, endless expanse of space. They didn't talk about heavens in Genesis 1 as being uh, the spiritual realm that you go when you die. They didn't talk about earth as being this huge globe suspended in space. They talked about heavens as being the sky and earth as being the land. It's in perfect contrast. Heavens are the skies up above and the earth is the land down below. And if we are going to be consistent with how the Bible uses the words heaven and earth without forcing our modern understanding onto these words, then it's very, very clear that Genesis 1 is not talking about the creation of the entire 
universe, or the entire solar system. But it's talking about the creation of the skies, heaven, and the dry land, the earth. And that conclusion is what has led many Hebrew scholars to give a, a literal render of Genesis 1-1 to not say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but in the beginning God created the skies and the land. And I hope that you can start to see how this kind of changes the usage of, of Genesis. How does this change our understanding in the way that we apply Genesis to a lot of the questions that we have? Because it, it's very clear. The, the authors are very clear with how they're using the wording that Genesis 1-1 is talking about the creation of the skies and the land. It's not talking about the creation of space and time in the universe. It's just talking about what they were able to perceive 3,000 years ago, which when they looked up, they saw the sky. And when they looked down, they saw the land. And that is the scope of Genesis 1-1. And with, and with this understanding of how the words heaven and earth are used, I have a challenge for y'all. Uh, this challenge for this week is read through the rest of Genesis 1. And in every place where it says heaven or heavens, replace it with the word sky, because that's what it means. And in every place where it says earth, don't think about earth as a globe, but think about earth as the ground, as a dry land, because that's how the authors were using it. And by doing that, I'm curious to see how different of a reading you get in a different understanding in comparison to how our modern reading of Genesis goes. I hope y'all enjoyed this episode of the series. I am so excited for the next episode, and I hope that this is challenging you. It surely challenged me, but I hope that you think that this stuff is cool, because I really think that this stuff is so cool and how different the biblical authors viewed reality and how they're still conveying the truth of God and the power of God through that. I'll see y'all next week.